This episode was recorded at the Power Licklick NGO Forum held in Sydney on Tuesday, the 22nd of October. The forum aims to strengthen the role and resilience of small and medium Australian NGOs working in international aid and development. The forum was hosted by the Kokoda Track Foundation, an organisation changing lives in remote and rural communities in PNG by providing access to education, healthcare and livelihoods and equipping the next generation of young leaders in PNG. Learn more at ktf.ngo. You're listening to episode 62 of Goodville Hunters, recorded at the Power Licklick NGO Forum in October 2019. You'll hear three speakers in this episode discussing partnerships between donors and NGOs. The first is Emily Fuller, the director at Mundango Abroad. The second is Emily Wellard Bering, the senior philanthropy and not profit services manager at Perpetual. And the third is Luke Brannigan, who is the director of philanthropic services at JB Weir and a former guest on this show. They discuss private, strategic and corporate philanthropy, providing great insights for any organisation looking to grow their donor network or diversify their funding sources. We've got a few more episodes to air that were also recorded at the NGO Forum, and I'm really excited to be sharing them with you all and to be able to preserve some of the great learnings of the event. I also wanted to add that we have a pretty huge year ahead of us here at Goodwill Hunters. I'll share more about it with you in the coming weeks, but one thing I will say now is that you'll see and hear a lot more guests from our region. I'm committed to amplifying different voices and creating greater diversity of thought and experience on the show. There is so much in the works and I'm basically bursting to tell you, but we'll have to wait just a few more weeks. Before I go, I also want to say a huge thank you to our loyal listeners and also a big welcome to our new listeners. This show is for you and I really welcome any feedback you have. My inbox is always open and I love to hear from you. Okay, enjoy the episode. Uh, I'm the COO at KTF. My name's Mike. Uh, I'm also the AV guy today, so please bear with me and the event photographer. So I might try and get a fun uh, photo at the end of this panel up the front, Ellen DeGeneres style. Um, so I will stay down here. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce um, the next uh, panel discussion, partnerships between donors and small to medium-sized NGOs. Uh, we have a great lineup. Uh, Emily Fuller is the director, director from uh, Mundango Abroad. Uh, Emily is also uh, the foundation manager of the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation. Uh, we have Emily Wellard Barring, who is the senior philanthropy and nonprofit services manager at Perpetual. Uh, and we also have Luke Brannigan, who is the director of philanthropic services at JB Weir. Um, so I might throw uh, right over to you, uh, Emily One, I'll call you on the right. Um, so Emily Fuller, um, I'll hand over to you uh, and then we'll go through, I'll change the presentations and we'll come back for a discussion at the end. Okay, so I've, I'm trying to keep it pretty practical um, today in terms of what we as a foundation look for in um, NGO partnerships. But I'll just tell you a little bit about Mundango Abroad itself. Um, it's a small private ancillary fund. I don't know if you guys um, are into that terminology, but we call it a PAF. Um, and it provides philanthropic support to developing countries. And our purpose is to support doers, uh, drive the changes that local communities want. It was established in 2007 by Sally and Jeffrey White and their idea came from 30 years working um, in DFAT and a strong interest in developing countries over that time. 
And Sally and Jeffrey are part of the Fairfax family and they were also conscious that none of the other trusts had the ability to uh, make gifts to overseas work and so they were motivated to set up um, Mundango Abroad, start small and hopefully over time um, other family members would contribute. So they got going um, and in the beginning they defined Southeast Asia um, because of its proximity to Australia and also Eastern Africa because Geoffrey grew up there and they also um, worked there um, as diplomats. Uh, so that went for about seven years um, in that way, fairly ad hoc kind of um, informal grant making. But in around 2014, everyone was conscious that it was quite a small foundation and the money was being spread quite thinly. So we decided we'd focus um, entirely on P&G. And this was for a number of reasons, uh, because we see it as really important to Australia as our closest neighbour and our former colony. And um, also, because there's so many people right there doing it really tough, and Australians didn't seem to care about it that much anymore. And that was something that really um, Sally and Geoffrey particularly felt because, you know, when they were growing up, they felt that young people knew about PNG and were interested in it. Um, and young people, Australians today, didn't seem to have that connection. So Sally's brother, Tim, had actually spent his gap year in um, PNG. And so they were conscious of, of the younger generations, I guess, losing touch. We also learnt that um, from supporting other work in Africa and other parts of Asia, how much harder it was for NGOs to raise money for PNG. Um, and even when we talked to other philanthropists that we admired for the, their international work, when we wanted to focus on PNG and we asked them for their advice, they obviously thought that we were crazy doing that. So that only cemented our conviction really. Okay, so we're still really evolving in terms of PNG, but we've distributed over a million dollars now. And as a PAF, we're required to give 5% of our corpus every year. So that year, this year, we'll gift about 220,000. And funding requests are considered on a case-by-case -case basis, but they've generally ranged between 10 and $30,000. Um, we have, we're open to providing multi-year funding. And if we can find anyone else to fund with, we're certainly um, trying to do that as well. We can only f grant to Australian-based DGR1s, some more beautiful um, technical terms that we love, but that's actually quite limiting if you're trying to get work done in P&G. Um, and we only meet three times a year to make those funding decisions. So it's pretty much a voluntary effort. There's six directors and we have some good back-end support through the Fairfax family office in terms of managing our investments and making sure we can meet our commitments. But most of the work's done by our chair, Angus White, and um, we've got kind of one day a month administration support. So I, I sort of caveat that in terms of when I put up the how to contact us thing. <laughs> we will get back to you, but we don't know when. <laughs> So it's really important to stress that we are not experts in PNG and what we're trying to do, I guess, is use our experience in philanthropy to connect, to connect with people who know PNG well 
and, though, and who are driving work on issues that are important to Papua New Guineans. So we're always trying to make connections with others and we've also been able to play a connecting role ourselves in organisations interested to um, work in PNG. When we look at funding um, requests, this is what our guidelines will tell you that we're looking for. So we look for strong local leadership and to us that means uh, people who are practical and they're making things happen on the ground and they're bringing others and motivating them as well. We look for healthy organisations that have sound governance and financial accountability. And we look for a demonstration and evidence that the issue that you're trying to address and the activity that you want to do is important to local people. So as far as we can try and understand that there's not only need uh, for this activity but that there's also demand and that the proposed use of the funds is logical and practical response to that issue and that local context. And finally we're looking for a clear articulation of what the outcomes will be or what will be different as a result of that grant funding. And with the outcomes it's more important I guess that they're clear than what they are. So we would never say, oh, you've got to get this many widgets for your $10,000. It's more that we understand what you want to be different as a result of that money. Um, so subject to those conditions and the resources that we've um, got available, we try to fund what applicant organisations tell us are their most pressing needs. So we like to gain an understanding of the organisation as a whole rather than just the funded activity. Um, and that might, depending on the circumstances, we would fund core operational costs like salaries, um, infrastructure, capacity building activities or specific project work. Uh, we don't fund humanitarian appeals or vehicles or anything that's political or terrorist related, obviously. <laughs> I guess, what are we looking for behind those, those things? Um, we're really looking for partners who've got a track record on the ground of working in meaningful partnerships with local communities and people. And I suppose this is where we see the real value in small to medium NGOs um, and the ability that they have um, to be up close and personal. So we prioritise organisations that employ and engage Papua New Guinea nationals to meet their own community's challenges and that can include initiatives developing local capacity, leadership, infrastructure, and that create jobs. And we favour organisations that provide opportunities for Papua New Guineans to lead the work. We look for specialists and not generalists. So organisations that um, are able to stick with their mission and what they're doing through fluctuating government aid budgets. And that's not a criticism of those who do have to change their priorities, but I suppose it's hard for us as a small foundation, if you might have been plugging away at an issue with an organisation for a few years, and then they say, oh no, we're doing governance now, after you've been working on health or whatever it is. It's just hard to get excited about, I guess, as, um, as supporters. So that's why this, the small to medium, I think, sort of suits, suits us as well. Strong accountability for the use of funds is important to us, as is a, a, a candid relationship with those that we fund. 
because we're not in PNG and not experts, um, you know, we've got a limited ability to generate funding leads and access those doers in PNG. So we value partners who readily share connections with other organisations doing great work. And I think there's examples here that KTF's introduced us to people in this room. So, um, you know, not everyone's going to introduce you to another NGO. Um, so that's really valuable to us. Uh, we also appreciate partners who can tell us the warts and all version of things. We know that um, things don't always go right and we're trying to learn as well. So that's helpful. Uh, okay, what do we look for in an actual application? It sounds obvious, but alignment between what you're doing and what our priorities are um, is kind of the first step. And you'd be surprised about some of the things that we, that we get. <laughs> Um, and we do have a template application form and that's got a suggested word limit. So what we're really after in an application is nothing less than that us and nothing more. So, um, you know, the questions are kind of obvious, but they've actually been thought through in terms of what we need to know and not to ask you things that, you know, aren't going aren't to gonna feature in the funding decision. So we love things that are written in really plain language. Um, and, you know, a good application to us, I guess, is no more than three pages. Now, the 2080 rule, I've plagiarised this from Backtrack, which is a youth organisation in Armidale. And their approach with kids when they come into their program is that they only spend 20% of the time looking at the past and the reasons why that child might be having a tough time. So run-ins with the law, drugs and alcohol, family issues. And they spend 80% of their time with that child figuring out how to help them get to their hopes and dreams. So 80% of the time on the future. So what does that have to do with this? So in a funding application, we're most interested in the action that you're going to take. So what's going to happen as a result of that funding and that work? And as dire as the issue and problem is that you're setting out to address, we don't need a thesis on that and especially of stats that we can find on Google. So what sets you apart is what you propose to do, why and why you are so well placed to do that. So 20% maximum on the problem and 80% on the strategy. Uh, some couple of things that I guess um, we're wary of in a funding um, discussion is being presented with a smorgasbord of different options and we'd really rather know what is the most pressing issue that you have and how you want to solve it. And the other thing, and I'm, I've, I'm sure I'm not going to make any friends here by saying this, but sometimes we have trouble with impenetrable fundraisers and that's... Um, I know that's, that's a good reason why some fundraisers are impenetrable, but I suppose sometimes we have questions that are really just best answered by people who are closer to the work on the ground. So I guess it's knowing when we can ask for that and being able to um, um, have that conversation at times. And I suppose just, you know, as an aside, the Fairfax families really constantly approached by development and fundraising people, which is fine. They're happy about that. But they've got a lot of experience, I guess, and um, and sometimes some of the questions just 
we get a richer understanding if we can speak to the program people. So what we look for in reporting, well, surprisingly, nothing more and nothing less than the acquittal report asks. Um, and really the most important part is telling us um, how you went with what you set out to do. So closing the loop on the outcomes. Um, we don't look for glossy photo-laden reports. Um, we're interested in the good and the bad and what you learnt through doing that and what you'd do differently. We're also really interested in if the work will continue after that funding and how that'll happen. Um, and I guess similarly, sometimes we have questions about the report um, that we get a richer understanding if we can talk to someone who knows it well. Thanks, Emily. That's great. Thanks for the presentation and thanks for your openness there as well. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank you on behalf of KTF for the very close working relationship we have with Mundango Abroad. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, Emily, number two from Perpetual is up next. Thank you um, and thanks everyone. Um, my name's Emily Wellard-Barring. I'm the Senior Philanthropy and Non-Profit Manager at Perpetual. Um, but I do, I guess, come to you today with my role at Perpetual, but also kind of 15 years experience working in the aid and development sector across the Pacific and across uh, remote Indigenous Australia. So what I'm going to be talking to you about is partly, yes, what we do at Perpetual and how we work around our partnerships and manage our... Um, you know, donor partnerships from that side, but also comes, and I think the experience comes from being one of you guys in the field, boots on the ground. So thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. It's really nice to be away from the corporate high-rise Navy suits, uh, patent leather heels, and back in a university talking about how we can get things done. Um, so a little bit about Perpetual, I'm sure a lot of you know about us from our IPAP um, impact philanthropy granting round. Um, we're a financial services and trustee company, 130 years old, and some of our trusts that we manage are that old. Um, we manage around about 1,100 charitable trusts, foundations, and endowments across the country, um, worth around about $2.8 billion. Um, and we distribute from that around about $100 million to um, not-for-profits all across Australia. Um, so what I really, these are kind of the three areas that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, one is strategic philanthropy. It's a framework that we talk about a lot at Perpetual and I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. It's about respectful relationships. It's what I see as the best way that funders and uh, recipients can really work together to achieve the outcomes on the ground and actually get to the space where, that we're all here working towards. Um, and a little bit of a case study talking about a trust that we manage and KTF and how they have worked together kind of for the, um, the medium term and then into the future. Um, so strategic philanthropy, um, it's something we talk a lot about at Perpetual. We have a strong relationship with the Stanford Centre for Philanthropy and Civil Society. And strategic philanthropy really comes, it's a shift away from that idea of, I think it came back in kind of the 90s, it was that media reaction to world vision and that idea of I want 92 cents in my dollar to go to the starving child in Africa that I saw on TV. So I'm going to fund organisations for programs and I want to know exactly how much you spend on everything else and I want it to make up this much and I want all the money to be going to the ground. And that's been probably the, the key theme in donor relationships, I think, in Australia since that time. 
What that we see um, creates, and what I'm sure all of you guys know firsthand, is that creates this starvation cycle. So it creates this idea where we have all of these um, project dollars, but no money actual, actually able to be spent on capacity building, on overheads, on stability, on monitoring and evaluation, on staff salaries, on IT, on CRMs, on all of those other things that we know actually create a strong and stable organisation that's able to then achieve mission. What that then leads to is mission drift. It leads to the tail wagging the dog, the organisation accepting funding in order to um, deliver on outcomes that are not necessarily values aligned and core strategy. Um, and so, you know, as I'm sure you all know, it leads to a lot of very creative um, bookkeeping around what is project-based and what is not. Um, and really what, I mean, it drove me nuts working in the field for a long time. And what we're trying to now do with strategic philanthropy is say to our clients, find an organisation that you have values alignment with. Make sure that you, you know, find someone that you see their mission and you want to be a part of it. Make sure that they're strong, make sure that they're well governed, make sure that they're strategic, make sure that they have a clear mission, strategy and pathway to get there, make sure that they're measuring their progress towards mission, then fund them to do whatever they need to do. And I think that idea came as such a, a breath of fresh air to me coming from the program space, coming from the... Um, development space, if I had another conversation with a donor who was trying to give me handy hints on how I could deliver a project in, you know, remote Solomon Islands from their, you know, 35th floor in the Rialto, I was going to jump out the window. So I think um, what strategic philanthropy really strives to do is say, we are not the experts. The donor is not necessarily the experts. You guys are. You're on the ground. You're talking to community. You're speaking to beneficiaries. Let's just give you money. Let's just give you money to do what you need to. So, you know, so it is a big shift in thinking. It's a shift that the US is a little bit probably further along than we are. But I think it's something that is really important to start talking to our donor community about. Um, and we're seeing some really exciting traction around that um, at Perpetual. So a lot of our, um, a lot of my uh, philanthropic clients really now do support some of the least exciting, least sexy, you know, most boring mundane office costs because they know that ultimately that's what the organisation needs to be able to achieve its mission. Um, that's probably as much as I need to talk about strategic philanthropy and really respectful relationships is just building on that. It's the idea that having money does not mean knows everything. It's about going on journeys with organisations. So philanthropy, it's all about relationships, yeah. It's all about building trust, building relationships and going on that journey. And what I try and talk to my clients about is say, find those organisations, again, find values alignment, find missions that you want to be a part of, but then don't expect that that organisation needs to kowtow to your every whim. Don't expect that you are therefore the, the expert in that organisation and don't expect to only hear the good things because we all know that you can tell, you know, you don't, you can write a really shiny, glossy, beautiful report that goes out, you know, is prepared by marketing, it's never prepared by programs. It goes out, the donors love it, it looks beautiful. 
it's not the full story. What I'm trying to work with my clients on is say, go on the journey, hear about the challenges, hear about the, you know, the um, some of the things that didn't go right. Nothing ever goes according to plan. Fund monitoring and evaluation so that we can learn from those mistakes, so that we can continuously improve and do better next time. But the, I guess the key part of it the, um, for me and that I'm working with my, with my clients on is, is build that relationship and build that re relationship understanding that the organisation know what they're doing. And if the organisation don't know what they're doing, don't fund them. It's as simple as that. Finally, I just want to do want to give you a little bit of an overview of the um, partnership between Fred P. Archer Foundation and um, Perpetual and KTF. So as I said, philanthropy, it's all, it's about relationships, it's about people. Philanthropy is using private wealth to fund uh, development projects. And the, the beauty of philanthropy and one of the fabulous things about my job is philanthropy is as individual and as nuanced as every single philanthropist who are as different and nuanced as, you know, the Australian um, public is in general. So I want to tell you a little bit about Mr Fred Palmer Archer. Um, Mr Archer was born in 1890 in Melbourne to a working class family. He had attended the Melbourne Working Man's College up until the time that his family could no longer afford it. He fought at the Somme in the First World War and upon his return from the war, he took up an advertised opportunity for ward veterans to manage former German, planta German plantations in New Guinea. So he moved to Rabaul in 1923 where he lived for 54 years. Fred was super successful in this business and he'd taken over several other plantations. Um, by the time the World War II came from the Pacific, he was you know, a big man in the area and had a lot of property, a lot of very successful plantations. Um, throughout the Japanese invasion and occupation of PNG, Fred worked as a coast scout, hiding in the mountains behind his plantation and reporting, to, reporting back to Australia on Japanese movements. Fred was a consummate patriot and a huge believer in education. So Fred sent a radio transmission to Townsville and invested £10,000 of his own private wealth to the Australian war loans, with £2,000 of that being interest-free. And this, again, I guess, is the beginning of that idea of philanthropy. After the war, Fred returned to his original copper plantation, which had been completely destroyed, and he began to rebuild. By 1950, the plantation was almost back to pre-war output. Um, he eventually left the plantation, moved to Rabaul with his entire staff of PNG nationals, many of whom had worked with him for over 35 years. He then established organisations and programs to improve the education outcomes of many of his staff's home villages. So he was completely committed to PNG. He was completely committed to the well-being of his staff, their families and their villages. Uh, prior to his death, Fred transferred transferred his F.P. Archer holding company into what is now known as the Fred P. Archer Charitable Trust. The trust was established in 1974 in New South Wales and went to a couple of different trustee companies and then came to Perpetual in 2015. So as the trustee for the um, Fred P. Archer Charitable Trust, Perpetual has a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that those funds are um, spent in alignment with the trustee. So we have a relationship with KTF and that goes, it's um, lasted long before Perpetual was in the, um, was in the picture. Um, so the Fred P. Archer Charitable Trust has now been supporting the Archer Leaders Development Program at um, the Kokoda Track Foundation since 
2011 and has now come on board to support a second program as well. And I guess the reasons why I want to talk about this um, or the, using this case study specifically is I think it highlights we had this one trust completely, you know, it was established with all of the experience and life challenges that had been thrown at Fred P. Archer. In his trust deed, he wanted to support um, education and wellbeing of villagers in PNG. So we've then, since then, building on that, have developed a relationship with KTF. As I said, they were well-governed, strong, strategic, well-managed, you know, amazingly well-run and systematic organisation. And so, therefore, uh, Perpetual sees that as the best way to use these funds is donating those in the long term. Allow the organisation to be able to actually plan, to be able to use the funds, to be able to explore what's working within that program rather than this kind of drip-feed effect which so often happens with short-term funding, um, funding agreements. Um, so I guess in conclusion really when I think of um, donor partnerships with small to medium-sized NGOs, it comes from two sides. It's from the organisational side of wanting some stability, wanting some, um, I guess, some, some capacity to, to do something different with those funds, some flexibility of how to use those funds and the, the understanding that there is a lot more to running a strong organisation and achieving mission other than just programs funding. But then from the philanthropist side, you want to know that your money is being spent well. So it's finding those organisations that are strategic, that have really clear mission, that are demonstrating progress towards mission. Um, and when those kind of values can align, then I think that's when philanthropy really can come in into its own and support community development, international development into the long term. Thank you, Emily. And thank you also for the ongoing relationship we have with you. Uh, next year, our Archer Leadership Program turns 10. So we're delighted to celebrate that. Um, and just a quick word around um, uh, Fred P. Archer as well is that not only is our program named after Fred P. Archer, uh, but we also do make sure that the conversation about Fred and his love of P&G is incorporated into the program throughout the year as well. And that discussion um, really does uh, keep his legacy alive as well. So thanks, Emily and Perpetual. Uh, over to Luke from JB Weir now. Good afternoon, everyone. I think you can hear me, hopefully. So... Um, as Emily was saying, I, I'm normally one of those people that wears blue suits, but, to, but today I'm actually in a board meeting for a strategy, uh, strategy board meeting for a mental health charity that I sit on, so just come across town for that. So um, just to, I'll give you just a little bit of background about JB Weir, but the purpose I was hoping from my session was to really just touch on philanthropy and really touch on some of the um, white papers that our team's written, but really uh, I think um, Emily one really focused well on private philanthropy. Um, and Emily, too, was, you know, really uh, focused in on, on a mission and strategic philanthropy. What I'm probably going to touch more on is corporate philanthropy, but happy to keep it pretty open. Um, we see right across the spectrum. So um, a little bit about a JB Weir. So we're the Weir per Perpetual's competitor. Uh, <laughs> let's just be honest. Um, so we, uh, we do a similar type thing. Uh, essentially, we, we're um, an investment house. We've been around for 179 years. We manage the assets for high net wealth individuals, their families, um, and a growing part of our business is for-purpose organisations. So, so the way we think about that is we think about philanthropists on one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is for-purpose or charities, the doing organisations in the sector. So as you can see, assets, um, all the boring 
financial stuff down the bottom. But essentially, um, we, we manage about seven billion of assets for full-purpose organisations. So we've got about five hundred clients around the country, and it's a really growing and important part of the JB Weir business. So the team I work for, um, it's called uh, Philanthropic Services. So. So uh, what we do is, I'm a financial advisor, but I'm not running money on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm essentially partnering with our clients so we can help you deliver on your mission, essentially. So we're sector consultants or specialists, if you like, and that's our three main, um, three main pillars, what we do. A lot of it starts with governance and especially investment governance. Many charities in Australia don't have the privilege of being, you know, invested. They don't have that many assets. Um, but there is a subset of organisations that do, and, and there's philanthropists as well that need a hand with that space. Probably what we're really going to touch on in this presentation is education and strategic advice. And the way we do that is, as a team, we write these white papers, which we hope really help us learn, but they also help the sector learn. Um, and that we really bring a financial lens to, to how we write those white papers. And the strategic advice, it depends what our clients need. Um, it might be discussing philanthropy, and it, it commonly is. And what today I think we're going to touch on is, you know, the, the importance uh, to the international aid sector of philanthropy. It's you, you're probably one of the few sectors that is so incredibly reliant on philanthropy, almost too much so, I would say. Uh, if you compare yourself to the other 26 subsectors within the charitable sector, there a lot, and the majority of those are less reliant on philanthropy. It's incredibly important to you. But I was interested to hear Save the Children before and. I know of some of their work they're doing on the social enterprise side. So that's interesting to see that they've kind of looked at their revenue stream and said, whilst philanthropy is still going to remain, you know, probably our, our biggest contributor, we need to diversify our revenue stream. So I think that that's an interesting uh, factor. So what I'm going to touch on briefly is primarily these two reports. So they're, they're very, um, our marketing team really went to town on the support report and the cause report, and we're about to have the corporate report coming out soon. So if you're interested in the charitable sector as a whole, this is the one to have a read, the cause report. So what you could do is you can go in there, you can find the international aid page, and you can look at how the whole international aid sector is funded in Australia. And it's a really good thing to do because you can actually benchmark yourself. All of that information is from ACNC data, so it's all publicly available. But you can actually see how your revenue compares to all of your peers. Um, and you can also see how your expenses are compared to peers. So it's a great benchmarking exercise to do. And as I was just saying, international aid is quite unusual in its revenue stream, really dominated by philanthropy and really dominated by mass market philanthropy. Um, um, especially. So have a read of that if you get the chance. In regards to philanthropy, the support report, that's the deep analysis of all of philanthropy in Australia. So that covers, you know, the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundations of Private Charitable Trusts. It also covers the growing emergence of PAFs, um, which is also Mundungo is a PAF. Excellent. So, um, you know, there, there's 1,600 of them now. There's about 10 million of assets. So that's a really growing segment of philanthropy. And it's also this new report that's going to come out is going to really touch on corporates. So corporates are potentially as generous as private philanthropy. But um, like private philanthropy, it's kind of peeling the onion, trying to find out where those opportunities are. Uh, I, I just threw a slide in in terms of uh, profit and purpose. So... We're seeing this right across our client base. You're finding investors are caring more and more about ethical issues, whether it be climate or other factors. 
And you're even starting to see, I don't, I don't know if people saw this, but the um, business roundtable in the US actually came out and changed the focus for the first time ever from purely shareholder returns to stakeholders. So this is quite a profound statement, I think, uh, globally, when you have people like Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan that are actually talking about, you know, the American dream fraying, you know, capitalism in its uh, purest form is, is not necessarily working for all of society. So I think this is a really important uh, factor, and especially for international NGOs, to think that corporates are really starting to, you know, are going to be required to be more ethical and more purposeful. So you have that. How do you bring that capability to them? Now, I touched on really briefly the, the segments of philanthropy. It's probably going to be really hard to, to read and happy to send it through. But philanthropy for us is, it's two stories in Australia. There's the good and the bad. So I'll start with the bad. I think that's less depressing. So um, down the bottom, we have individuals. And this is basically what we're predicting happens with individual giving. So I think 1983 was the year we were most generous in Australia. Something like 42% of us donated tax-deductible gifts. And we've been pretty much flatlining ever since. So you do see some other stats that come out that say giving is really great in Australia. But in our experience, Australians are great at disaster appeals, but not great at general giving. So you can see this is tapering off. It's going to continue to taper off. So mass market is important to probably most of you. Um, but know that you're in an increasingly competitive space. It's declining. It's challenged. You've got sophisticated fundraising teams. You've got large charities that do it very, very well and dominate the market. So just know that um, it's important, but you're probably going to have to tilt at some stage. Now, the, the more exciting part of uh, philanthropy, which um, we've touched on, is private ancillary funds. So we can see... Uh, where are we here? So private ancillary funds... I touched on them briefly. So we've got about 10 billion of assets. Ramsey Foundations, you know, three and a half billion. Um, Paro Foundation, which I think will be roughly about the same size. So getting large amounts of capital flowing into, into that space. Then we've also got public ancillary funds. So Perpetual has its public ancillary fund and some of the other um, entities do as well. The, you know, the community foundations around the country. Most of those are focused on their community area, so potentially not a great source of philanthropic capital for international aid, but not to say it couldn't be as well. Um, and then what we're seeing here, which what I was hoping to just cover briefly, was the corporate space. So corporates are going to continue to grow. So this is corporate sponsorships and this is corporate partnerships. So I, I personally would encourage you to tilt. What, what you're seeing at the moment is international aid organisations focusing on this. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, and many of you probably have, try and get better into this space. So the corporate report, uh, we, I think it's going to be early next year at the moment, but it will come out through the BRW, and we do the AFR Top 50 Philanthropists. So if you consider the two of them, potentially the, the top 100 corporates are going to be you know, contributing a little bit more, if it, and this is an estimate at the moment, but this is based on 1% of their... Uh, pre-tax profits. So essentially, it's probably going to be a bigger contributor than private philanthropy is. Okay, just a, just a couple of points on, you know, corporates, which I'm sure many of you are aware. So I, prior to JB where I used to run the MLC Foundation. So that was a corporate foundation uh, with a mental health focus in terms of outcomes. 
very explicit in that way. Quite unusual for a corporate to have a you know explicit purpose. Um, many of them are broader, but we're we're really starting to see. And JB Weir is owned by NAB, and essentially NAB, I would say, has been on a journey of um, strategy within um, within its CSR and um, foundation focus. So the way NAB sees the world, which I think are many many entities are starting to move this way. They see it. You've got corporate philanthropy and it has its foundation as do you know some of the other banks then you've got csr which is much more about you know supply chain other type of factors um, and then you've got the shared value space which is the new frontier very hard for certain causes to play within that space but i don't think it's a bad lens to have a discussion with a corporate i, I think that gives you a good opportunity to discuss with corporates across those three theaters because some corporates will really want shared value they might not even know what that means, <laughs> but they'll want it. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's the, the corporate, you know, the cor pure corporate philanthropy is, is a hard space to crack. It's probably only about 10% of the corporate contribution, the pure donation. So whilst, whilst important, um, you need to have a strategy when you, t when you talk to these people. So this just touched on the, as well the breakdown. So so we've got large businesses and small businesses. So I I personally think within the international aid space, and I've got another slide that that touches on it. I I personally think you're better off targeting SMEs, which I don't know if, if you feel the same, but but I think that that's a much easier space for you to play, because large corporates in Australia are going to be increasingly moving towards that shared shared value place, and. It's going to be hard for you to show, you know, NGO social outcomes overseas, especially, have some type of corporate benefit back to them. Unless it's like a multinational, like a FMCG or something like that, it's going to be very hard to have those proof points. But as you can see, we get, we're within the small space, donations still high, um, so that's good. No one's going to say no to that, are they? But then you've got partnerships and sponsorships, whereas here the partnerships is really you know, the growing and big factor within large corporates. But they're going to be looking for everything, essentially. They're going to be looking for, um, you know, uh, corporate volunteering, pro bono opportunities, how do you get involved in their strategy days, all types of things like that. So if, you, if you're playing in this space, you've got to come with all of that as well. Whereas this side is going to be much more purposeful. Here is just a few things. Cash is very important. Um, don't target the biggest or most obvious corporate. There's quite a lot of, uh, and coming from the you know banking industry, it's quite interesting. If you did have a large relationship with one bank, it's probably unlikely you're going to have a relationship with another one. So it's quite an important consideration when you enter into a partnership with a large entity if you get that opportunity. The demands as well. I mean, Emily really touched on a, on a great point. I thought in terms of the mission creep, we see that. Um, you know, essentially, especially very hard for small NGOs that, you know, you, you are chasing funding. I mean, the sector is dominated by large NGOs that get the funds and dominate the, uh, the funding rounds. The small NGOs don't get the funds, have to chase the funds and have to have mission creep because they, they can't source those funds. So it's very important, I think, to try and hold that strategic line based on your beneficiary and, and mission. Um, but it's not always easy. I, I take that on board. Reputation is incredibly important. As I was saying, we're, we're doing more and more on the on the investment side from an ethical ESG and impact investment perspective, really, really starting to grow. So I think um, 
your ethics and you as an entity is incredibly important. We've seen some of the trust erode within the sector. Um, a lot of the Edelman surveys will show trust is declining everywhere, but the NGO sector is not immune to that. So I think that's an incredibly important factor as well um, when you're partnering with corporates. And I think this one might be one of my last ones, but I thought this was interesting. So if you can see it, this is large corporates here, and this is small to medium corporates, and this is international aid. So that's a, a blip, um, a sad blip. <laughs> and, um, but this, you know, this shows that it, whilst it's not huge, there is opportunity there. So the corporate report will have a lot of information on the top, I, th I think it'll be the top 50 corporates in the end in, in Australia. So I, I don't probably see, unfortunately, uh, for, for international NGOs, probably a lot of new, um, new information there for you in terms of or new connections. It's probably going to be mostly Australian focused, I would say. Um, but you never know. And as I was saying before, uh, the contentious industry side where, I mean, modern slavery, I, I don't know how many of you organisations here have experience within that. We're, we're finding that, um, you know, on the corporate side, a, a continuing conversation. So many corporates um, are going to have to report on that. They don't have, you know, acumen in that. I think there's some NGOs exploring, should they do that as a service? You know, what are the say, capabilities in that? Could that be an additional revenue source? All of those factors for consideration. Thanks, Luke. I was just going to thank you for your advice. I'm glad that disclaimer came up at the end there. <laughs> That's it for episode 62. If you have any feedback on the discussion, please share it with us. And if you have ideas for future NGO forum events, please get in touch with us via the website or contact the Kokoda Track Foundation directly. Also, before we close, we're on the lookout for new sponsors. If you're a fantastic, socially conscious, for-purpose organisation and you'd like to share your great work with over 10,000 listeners across 56 countries, then please get in touch. All right, bye for now.